It's my pleasure to welcome Cody Cornell, co-founder and chief strategy officer of low-code security automation vendor, Swimlane. We talk about how Swimlane overcame the issues caused by COVID, how the sales process has changed in 2023, and some golden advice for entrepreneurs thinking of starting their own business. I'm Oliver Legg, co-founder of Aspiron Search. Enjoy the show. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome Cody Cannell, the founder and CSO of Swimlane. How's things, Cody? Things are good. Excited to be on. Absolutely. Where uh, where are you calling in from uh, today? Home in uh, Colorado? Yeah, I'm, I'm here in the Swimlane headquarters office here, which is in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, yeah. No, awesome. And uh, you were just talking me through your uh, your rock uh, poster or... or, or uh... <laughs> frame picture behind us so uh i think we've agreed that the uh the uk certainly set the tone in uh in in uh in rock and the progression of, of rock music oh yeah i mean obviously i mean between the beatles and the led zeppelin you you know they get a lot of credit for i think a lot of the at least the music that i listen to so. yeah no for sure well uh i'm sure a lot of listeners will uh will will know the name swim lane but for for people that aren't aware of who you guys are, um, what 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 is Swimlane? What are you uh, what are you here to try and do in the security sector? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as a bit of background, you know, I spent probably fifteen years doing security operations, and and doing that realized that you know it was it's really difficult to keep up with everything that's going on, and Swimlane was really born out of that, which is you know it's an audit, uh, it's a low code security automation system. It's designed to help folks automate a lot of the really burden up, burdensome and repetitive tasks that, you know, security teams, regardless if they're in the SOC or, you know, the compliance team, whatever it might be, have to do every day that, you know, sometimes is not the, the most exciting things to do on a daily basis. Um, it really automates a lot of that work. And, you know, it's something that we've been doing for almost 10 years now. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And for, uh, it's, it's a, it's another term that seems to get kind of thrown around uh, frequently, but for, for people that don't truly understand what it means, the 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 term low code security platform. What what does that actually mean in 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 basic and layman's terms? Yeah, I mean, if if you were to ask like the big analyst firms, the gardeners of the world, they, they would categorize Swimlane as a sore product, right? Security, orchestration, automation, response. Um, we think that's a little bit of a narrow definition, and that's just because of you know how we've built what we have. But low code for us is really that ability for people to build kind of security centric applications. You know, you see a lot of low code applications that live, you know, for people that are building mobile apps or they're building applications for e-commerce, whatever it might be. Um, you know, a lot of security teams need, you know, applications. You need an application that will help users request access to a third party website or, you know, submit a phishing email or whatever it might be that there's there's a lot of these applications that the teams need. And that's really what Swimlane is designed to do is, is help those people build those use cases and solve for those problems, both inside and outside of the SOC. Yeah, awesome. And so does that does that mean it benefits companies with smaller in-house security teams more than the larger businesses with fully established security teams or is there a a play across both of those uh, both of those aspects? I, I think there's a benefit to both. I think the, the folks that we see typically adopting are probably, you know, larger organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, our customer base is kind of the Fortune 500 Global 2000 uh, style customers. And, you know, for them, they're they're really trying to get some economies of scale. They've made investments. They have all the kind of basics in place and um, they're really trying to scale. We do have smaller customers um, that are using the platform. 
that you know I see a lot of benefit because they just don't have the people. Um, so automation is super valuable for them. But I'd say by and large, what you see is you know established organizations that are that are you know either internalizing security practices or maturing their security practices. Um, you know, leveraging automation to you know really just get more bang for the buck. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, you uh, you you had a, a record year in uh, in twenty twenty two. Opened a lot more regions and had some. I believe it was fourteen Fortune four uh, five hundred wins, um, which is in, impressive for uh, still a, a growth stage nice. business. Um, and we'll, I mean, we'll come on to the success and in in particular the the way that you have have led Swim Lane to succeed in the very challenging 2023 shortly. But before that, really keen to just go back into, into your background and how did you get into security and the operational side of security to now being the uh, the CSO of a, a leading security vendor? Yeah, uh, it's it kind of a, an unconventional uh, trajectory. I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Montana, not exactly a tech hub. Um, more of a cow town than anything else. But uh, I spent five years in the service. And uh, when I got out of the service, I started working for the federal government. So spent a lot of time, you know, doing security programs around vulnerability management and endpoint security, uh, but really started migrating into, you know, security ops, right? So building building SOC teams, all the procedures, recruiting, the, you know, the teams, being a SOC manager, all that fun stuff. And, you know, through that experience, you know, doing it for financial services organizations and managed service providers and um, really started building what, what again would have been kind of, you know, individual automation systems. Like, you know, for the Department of Defense, we build an automation system it was kind of a, a, a amalgamation of a bunch of different things that we put together. It really solves um, the similar problem with, you know, what we were doing in Swimline, which was, you know, at the time was, you know, hundreds of thousands of DLP alerts that were you know, we were dealing with as a really small team. And how do we actually automate that work? Because there's no way we can actually triage each one of these by hand. Um, so did that, did something very similar for financial services. And then, you know, kind of started consulting and realized, wait a minute, so shouldn't there be a piece of technology that actually works, you know, across, you know, every organization that they could use to solve the same problems that we were experiencing? And um, that's when we started, you know, back in 2012, started building uh, Swimline, which was, you know, our goal was to build a really dynamic and flexible platform that would allow people to solve a huge variety of security problems. And, you know, that's what we've been working on ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And I mean, you're what I mean, coming up to uh coming up to a decade in now. So it's a good uh good amount of time series, series C, right? It was a 70 mil round last uh last summer. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, we announced it last summer. We did a $70 million round. Uh, it was great. We had a new lead investor in, in Activate. Um, also had kind of, uh, you know, we had existing investors kind of come in as well. So um, it was a good round and, you know, excited to see, you know, what we've been able to do with it and grow. And as you mentioned, a lot of inter international expansion for us, mm -hmm. um, both, you know, on the, you know, go to market front, but also, you know, technical support. Uh, we have distributed professional services, R&D. So, um, you know, it's, it's been an interesting kind of maturity process over the last few years and going from being a, you know, pretty much U.S.-centric organization by and large. We have, we've had international customers for a long time, but we've always serviced them from here. And now we're, you know, very much a, an international organization. Mm. How how has that changed your, I, I know you transitioned from, um, from CEO to CSO, fairly recently but when when you started opening APAC and EMEA and 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 then new companies uh, new countries within APAC like Japan how, how did that change your role 
as a CEO uh, at this time? Yeah, I mean, so I think uh, I think Jim has been the CEO for coming up on three years now. So a lot of the international expansion, you know, we'd started uh, into Europe and we had started into Australia uh, when I was still the CEO. Um, you know, the nice thing is, you know, when Jim come on board, he had a, t- a ton of experience expanding internationally. You know, he uh, built a public company. He, you know, built a couple other, you know, startups all the way up through acquisition. And in doing that, he'd had experience on kind of what are the steps, you know, how do we evaluate a region uh, for his success. And then how do you make that decision to go into that region? And a lot of it, you know, especially at our stage, you know, is, you know, it's people centric, right? Getting that first hire that's going to be in that region that has a network that can start driving, you know, success, you know, both in sales, but also customer success um, is super important, you know, because they're so far from, from HQ and, you know, as a startup, you're, you're always working somewhat chaotically and, Mm -hmm. They, they need to be able to work on their own and be successful. Um, so really finding the right people uh, and just making sure you can be successful in the market, right? There's there's definitely, you know, different distribution models. You know, in Europe, it's a very much a two-tier distribution model with distributors and resellers versus the U.S. where there's a lot more direct selling. Um, other regions like the Middle East and, you know, uh, APJ are very much like that. So, you know, you got to be kind of ready to, you know, support those different go-to-market motions um, and also just different like support expectations, right? Some folks, you know, very happy to deal with English support folks. Some folks need those, you know, people to be, you know, in region, you know, language, things like that are super important. So it, it's hard to be, it's, it's easy to see the opportunity to grow business. It's you have to be very realistic about what you can support successfully uh, and actually grow over time because restarting is, is can be very painful. So mm. one of I mean, one one of the most common requests and piece of work that the that, that Aspiron works on is Israeli companies looking to hire their first go to market leaders or, or, or go to market teams in, in the US. And right. It's it's the most common request and it's the most common thing that they get wrong. Um, and it, it can set them back months, years, um, tens of millions in revenue. Um, was there, was there an occasion where you got it wrong when you were expanding into a new region or did you manage to waste it every single time first time? Um, I, I would say that, you know, when we moved into the middle East, it was right before COVID. So mm-hmm. I would say that that was particularly difficult just because, you know, a region, it takes a lot. You know, if you're going to open up a new region, you, you probably better expect to be putting in a year to 18 months before mm-hmm. you really start seeing really consistent, predictable, you know, uh, success. Right. So um, and then when you go into a region and then you go into, you know, an unprecedented global pandemic um, that really slowed things down and really prevented um, us from getting some momentum. Um, you know, so, in, you know, I mentioned the restarts are hard and that, that is an example of where we kind of had to restart a region. And, you know, thankfully, you know, we kicked that off probably, it was about a year ago, actually, uh, right now, the Jitech Summit in, in Dubai is probably the biggest, you know, tech conference in the world. And uh, that runs every year. And that's where we did our kickoff last year. Um, and, you know, it's been very successful. And I think that's, you know, mostly attributed to getting the right people. I think that, the, you know, we have the right regional leadership and sales folks and things like that, sales engineers and all the stuff that goes along with that in that patch. And because of that, you know, it's, it's been successful, but it, it did require us to do it twice, which is, as you've mentioned, always, always painful. And what, what other than getting the right people, what, what else did you do differently second time around? Um, I know I there think, wasn't a global pandemic coming on, which uh, yeah, that, that helped for <laughs> which sure. Which definitely <laughs> would have would have helped. Yeah, 
I think the other thing is that we had become a, a little bit more international organization, right? So at, at that time, we had been supporting Australia and Europe. Um, Middle East starts creeping into that, you know, really hard to cover time zone. Um, as you, you know, there's, you know, India and the Middle East, and these are just time zone wise, they're way off. And, you know, when you're, you need access to engineering help or tech support, um, th- I think that we didn't have as much maturity and the, the organization one is, is, wasn't as robust at the time. I um, mean, I think, you know, we've expanded a lot. So now we have, you know, a true kind of 24 seven around the clock support. So those folks aren't, they don't feel quite as isolated. They don't feel quite as, you know, uh, they don't have to be quite as self-sufficient as I probably the first group of people that, that went into that region did. Um, because, you know, we, we have better support. There's, there's people in, in, you know, a staggered set of time zones as opposed to just, you know, the U S time zones. Yeah. Do you, th- do you think a lot of firms do just try and, and do you think you are you are kind of in this scenario as well? Do you think a lot of firms just try and do those things too soon, and they do try and open into regions or expand into completely different, brand new territories before the wider business is ready? Um, I don't know that I have a lot of data points on. You know, you hear about successes, but you don't hear a lot about failures. You know, that's human nature is to hide those a little bit. I think, you know, a little bit less than do I think they did or didn't, because I'll, I'll be honest, I probably don't have enough data to answer that, you know, but I think you have to really think about your, your both your sales motion and your support needs. If you're selling a product led tool that is, you know, self-supportable and, you know, the, the transactions are, are fairly straightforward, I think your ability to move internationally is probably a lot easier or the barrier to entry it's probably a little bit lower. You probably have to think a lot more about localization and things like that. Um, But as far as like, can I go into that region? It's probably a little bit different than if I'm a field sales organization where I have to engage with channel and and all these different things. So I think you just have to be really thoughtful about what does it take to sell your product in that region? What does it take to support your product in that region? What are their expectations from a customer success perspective? And, you know, be willing to make that investment and know that you have to make that investment for, you know, it a year to two before you're going to really feel like you know it's working or not and you know that that that's tough i mean when you have limited resources those bets can be hard um but if they work they pay off tremendously so yeah yeah for sure and it's it's clearly paying off second time around um and so i mean rewinding to your to your raise last summer so um excellent raise um it it was definitely at a time where there was, I mean, what the peak of funding into the cybersecurity world um, that there's ever been. Uh, and then into 2023, everything slowed down, completely different markets. What was that period like for Swimlane? And how did you manage to kind of still be successfully, successfully growing kind of nearly 12 months on from that now? Yeah, I mean, I I think you know, for better or worse, we probably missed you know. The, the, you could you could argue either side. You know, November of twenty twenty one was like peak hysteria, right? That's when you know mm-hmm. you know companies with a couple millions of dollars of ARR were, were raising at billion dollar valuations and all of that craziness, which really kind of you know to your point, as you move into twenty two and twenty three, really kind of compound compounds the complexity of managing a business. We raised uh, in May of twenty two, so I would say it was a much more kind of thoughtful and well timed. Uh, raise for us just because um, it allowed us to be a little kind of outside of the hysteria that was 2021. Um, but, you know, I, I think anytime you're going to, you know, take money from anybody, you have to have a plan that you feel like you can execute that the execution of that has to be based on historical data. 
Um, you know, what, I mean, all the classic stuff, I mean, you, you guys help folks uh, kind of build strategies. So, you know, you talk about quota coverage and demand generation and, you know, what's your average deal size and, you know, how much channel contribution can you get? And there's all of these things that, you know, you can, you can grab the industry norm and say, this is what most people experience, but you really need to look back at your own historical data and go, what, what can we actually do? And then you have to offset that, you know, with, you know, what is, you know, the economy going to do? And that, that's the, I think the hardest part, Things that are under your own control, you can really turn the dial on. I can I can invest into things that are working. I can pull back on things that are not. Um, but when you're dealing with things that are just entirely outside of your control, that's the part where you know you you have to make I would say you know calculated bets, which is do I need to pull back to conserve capital so that I can have more time to execute a plan, um, or is this a chance when all of my competitors are pulling back and I can lean in and go take market share? So you have it's you got to be again realistic with like what can we do if you if you have you know a, a, a product that goes and you can sell via SEO and pay per click you know maybe you can ramp up and it's a good moment to go get very inexpensive pay per click and drive a lot of you know uh, demand and get people that are ascending into your product if you have a field sales motion you got to be more realistic what are the sales cycles going to look like you know our procurement team is going to tighten the tighten this, you know, the, the purse strings per se, like you, you gotta be, you know, thoughtful about them. And I think that's, that's hard to do because, you know, if anybody could predict the economy, they probably wouldn't be working because they would be infinitely wealthy. So. <laughs> and what, what have you seen change in the sales cycle? Because companies and CROs, CEOs, C-level across the board are, are seeing a very different, sales process um sales cycle in terms of time but then also buying persona than we were i mean what 18 months ago even 12 months ago so what what, what have you seen from swim lanes side yeah i mean from swim lane side and you know you know obviously talk to a lot of other founders and execs mm -hmm. that are running you know organizations there's definitely been not a tale of two cities but a, a pretty drastic difference between folks that are selling into like SMB. So if I traditionally sold a product that was adopted by startups, um, obviously there was new startups every day, the seat counts were growing in those startups, like the ability to, you know, really grow and scale, which they, they definitely benefited from, you know, basically, you know, probably going back to 2010, all the way through, you know, 2021, um, that, that got harder. That got much more difficult. You know, obviously people weren't hiring as fast. Seat count wasn't growing. People were becoming much more sensitive to SaaS spend and all of these things. So that was a little bit harder. We sell to bigger organizations, right? So if you're selling to big blue chip, you know, publicly traded organizations, um, they're, they're generally, I mean, they have budget changes uh, that, and that's something we've seen is right. You know, it used to be, you know, every year you'd see five or 7% uplift in, in budget, which always give them room to go buy more tools or, up, you know, for us to, you know, expand within those accounts. Um, and that definitely leveled off. I don't think anybody's reducing security spend right now, but there's definitely um, some appetite to stabilize. And there's a lot more expectation that they're going to get more value uh, out of the investments that they are making. Um, so we see in the sales process, you know, the sales process does lengthen a little bit and more personalities to your point come into that sales process. It used to be, you know, if you could get to the CISO and they budget approved it, it was fine. But now there's even, you know, budget scrutiny above and beyond that, you know, the CFO. So the sales process now uh, also probably includes a business case and a business justification and why they're spending the money and what value do they expect to get from it and more scrutiny around contractual terms, right? 
Is it multi-year? Do we get what kind of discount do we get? Are we preventing ourselves from, you know, pricing escalation and out years? Like there's all of these things that typically kind of in in boom times, people just kind of wave their hands and just keep rolling. Um, isn't actually the case now, right? There's there's a lot more scrutiny coming into each and every dollar spent. So um, yeah, that's uh, that, those are some of the things that we've seen. Hopefully, hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, no, it, I mean it comes back to the it's if your product isn't essential, it, it's it's not it's not getting purchased right now. Um, yeah. Whereas yeah, budgets were a lot of, a lot looser, and sales process in some instances were a bit a bit looser. Um, last year and the year before um and, and and much before that as well um we yeah. we've also seen it from a from a hiring perspective as well though and I, I, i'm not sure what your take is on this but there were that there were definitely a lot of people that have been laid off over the last year or so that really probably shouldn't have been hired in the first place um because along with buying processes being a little bit looser hiring processes were as well because people needed kind of average people to fill those orders. So I, I don't know what your take is on that and how how that's now changed with where we are in October 2023. Yeah, I, I think, you know, for, I mean, as long as I can remember, hiring security folks has been, you know, terribly difficult, right? There's, you know, we actually ran a, a you know, a, a survey with, I think it was a, a thousand respondents. And I think 80% of them said they're never going to be fully staffed. You know, mm -hmm. that, like that, that's a staggering statistic. But what we have heard from folks, you know, especially this year is that, you know, they've actually been at, you know, for folks that have openings, that have budget, um, you know, that are willing to kind of, you know, look nationally for talent, they've actually done a lot better this year just because hiring has slowed kind of dramatic, you know, across sectors. And it's allowed them to kind of fill some of these spots. Now they're going, all right, when the economy changes, let's, we go back to a boom time or you know, interest rates fall or you know, like I'm not an economist, whatever is going to change the dynamic of the economy that will send us something, you know, more similar to maybe like 2018 through 2020. Can they keep those people, right? Because they, they feel like there is a moment right now where they're, they're starting to attract folks that typically felt out of reach, both from a skills perspective and just from a volume perspective. Um, but now they're, they're kind of getting into the spot where they're like, okay, great. I've finally filled this role and it's finally feels stable. Now I'm terrified of what happens, you know, when something changes. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's, but it's still hard. I mean, you still see a lot of, you know, government organizations hiring junior people and getting them kind of up to, you know, uh, you know, base skills and those people turning out. Managed service providers have that same problem. Um, you know, there's just not everybody can pay what the big financial services organizations pay for security talent, and you know that just. Unfortunately, you know, as people are human, they're going to go and do what's right for themselves and their families and things like that. But that makes for a lot of, you know, personnel turn, um, especially in the, I would say the junior ranks from a cybersecurity perspective, not quite as much in the senior ranks, but there's still, there's still some pain there. Yeah. And I mean, you, you you're, you're ex-security, well, you still are a security professional, but you're from, from industry. So you'll be able to speak to this pretty well, but what, what was your very first route into into your first security role? Because we, I mean, we've got a program where we're trying to to help that transition and get aspiring security folks their first role. And yep. the difficulty isn't finding people that have the coachable skills. It's not finding the people that want to work in security and are committed to it. It's finding the companies that are willing to hire an entry level person and train them up um, without 
falling into the same problems you said about government and MSSP. So how how did you do it? What was your route in when you first got into the industry? Yeah, I mean, we're rolling the clock back to the you know, turn of the century to make myself feel really old here. Um, I think the security was a little different then, right? I mean, people that were going into security were going into security, you know, it was like, you know, big ass, uh, as opposed to now where, you know, security is much more um, segmented. Like there's a lot more specialties than there was, I would say, when I joined um, in, into the industry, right? So I actually was working as a Unix administrator. You know, I was on the back end of a bunch of, you know, hardening and you know and the dod is called the stig process which is basically like the system hardening like hey you're running a solaris server the solaris server has to have these configurations in order to be put on the network so i was learning kind of security through system administration work um and then that really gave me an opportunity to you know when kind of vulnerability management was having its you know first foray into the world right some of the early vulnerability scanners there wasn't a lot of people that could look at the scan results and go i actually know what to do to, to remediate the findings that we're finding with these scanners. So that was my kind of segue into security is that I was able to kind of transition from being a system administrator of you know, Unix and Linux servers into saying, hey, I know what these scan results are saying. Like I know what an Apache server is and I know why you know, the HT access file is looking the way that it looks and what do I got to do to actually fix this problem, right? And you know, those are some of the most like elementary fixes, but there was a lot of folks that could run the scan but didn't actually know what was going on, on the other side. And for me, that was, that was how I was able to transition to security because you know, I, I was filling a, a, a void uh, in, on that team. So that, that was how I made that transition. And, um, you know, yeah, that's, that's how it all got started. <laughs> and did you see yourself, uh, well, 20, 20 years later, uh, nearly 25 years later, being, uh, being the founder, well, co-founder and, and CSO of a, a, a high growth business? Or was that, a, did that just become a bit of a pipe dream? Yeah, I mean, it was, I had always wanted to start a company, even as a kid. Um, but I, I'd always assumed it would be like a sandwich shop or something. Like I, 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 I never expected to be a venture-backed tech company. Like that was never really in the. But I always wanted to have my own business. That was something that was interesting. Um, and you know, the the way that I found myself into that is after working in industry for you know big organizations and government and things like that. Just started consulting. I mean, that was kind of what I did. It was you know me and the actually the co-founder of Swimlane, Brian, uh, actually founded another before that a consulting company where we were doing consulting for the government and uh for commercial organizations and that was kind of our that's how we tipped our our uh put our toes into the water of of running a business and so we did that for a number of years and it was inside of that company that we started building the software and at that point we we had to split it out because consulting company and a technology company especially if you want to be venture backed are two very different animals um so i i you know stepped out of the consulting business. He continued to run it. Um, and thank God he did because without the money from that consulting company, Swimlane would never existed. We took all the profits and funded the technology company. And, you know, that's how we made it work. Um, so it was more um, incidental than thoughtful, I guess. It was more, I know there's a problem. Let's let's try to build something that solves the problem. And then I'd never worked at a vendor before. I'd always been, you know, a, a practitioner inside of organizations. So, um, there was a lot of hard lessons for many years um, just because we didn't know anything about back office or product management or engineering or go to market or sales or marketing. They were all new. 
you know, I'd never worked at a, a big vendor before where I at least could have seen some of these things. And that's something that, you know, I tell a lot of folks, like, if you want to start a company, probably should go work at one that's like does something similar to what you're doing. So you can kind of see what all the functions are. And if what is someone who's good at a function look, you know, act like, and what do they do? And what is their experience? And how do they respond to questions? Um, we, we had to learn all that stuff the hard way, unfortunately. <laughs> Sometimes it's the best way. And you, you, you said something in our call prior to in, in the run up to this about the the kind of the creeping doubt of of should I or or shouldn't I? Um, and where where did that come in when when kind of deciding to start the the business? Yeah, I mean, if, if I if I think back and if I'm really honest, I think I there was there was three of us. We'd myself and Brian, and then we'd hired a developer, Austin. Um, who was helping us build stuff inside of our consulting practice. And they very much wanted to start a, a software company. And I very much was like, guys, we don't know how to do this. We've never done it before. Like, this is not our core company. We have a lot of customers that love our consulting services and the business is going well, it's growing, you know, at a reasonable pace. Like this is a, a massive departure from, you know, what, what we are doing right now. And um, I think, you know, so I was I was initially the odd man out. The thing that changed it is, um, you know, I, I give Austin credit. He just on nights and weekends started building something, and uh, you know, I saw it and I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was so excited to see something that you know I thought could help, and you know, change the way that we do work and watch it iterate and the, the process of interacting, you know, with designers and engineers and and watching that iterative process happen. It, it was super addictive. Like I, I, I can't imagine doing any other work now. Um, it's just, it's, it's such a fulfilling process um, that I just didn't know existed. And, you know, that's, so that, that took me from skeptic to, you know, totally, you know, this is what I want to do and this is how I want to spend my working hours. So um, yeah. And then, you know, over time we got the prototype up and we showed it to people and then realized the mechanics of it were required us to get it outside of the consulting company and spun it out of the consulting company. And then you just start reading a lot of books and talking to a lot of people about all the other things you got to figure out to make that a reality. So. <laughs> yeah. I can't, can't disagree <laughs> with that one. What, uh, I'll probably put you on the spot here, but what, what, uh, whether it's tech or whether it's the, on the business or inspiration side, what's the, what's the best book that had the, uh, had the biggest impact? Um, I think for me, like the, the one of the ones that stood out for me early um, was uh, Jason Lemkin's Predictable Revenue. And and for me, it was, I didn't understand how a modern sales process worked, right? So I, again, like I, I, I was never an engineer, right? R&Ding and building product and being a developer is, is a whole discipline. Like I was a practitioner, right? So that was all new to me, you know, but, but I could at least understand it because like it made sense to me. I'd done web application security testing and I understood, you know, databases were, and I understood the software development lifecycle because you kind of have to know that for security. But um, so at least I felt I had, but like, how do you go to market and, and get somebody to buy your thing? And that I, I didn't know what a, you know, I didn't know what demand generation was. I didn't know the different vectors for collecting leads. I didn't understand conversion rates. I didn't know what an SDR or BDR was. Like I didn't know the difference between field sales and channel sales and direct sales and product-led growth. Like that was all just foreign to me. So reading that book was was an eye-opener. I was like, oh, holy cow. There's there's this whole other side of this thing that we want to do that I've never been exposed to in my life. 
Like I've never been, I've responded to RFPs. I worked at like IBM. So, you know, every once in a while you get pull in like, Hey, let me put a reference architecture together for X, Y, Z thing. Um, but I'd never been like, I'm going to call somebody and say, Hey, have you heard of this? And would it be beneficial for you? Like that, that whole motion was just, it was totally foreign. So that for me, that was, that was, that's when I realized one, I was way out of my depth and I just, then I had to consume. So then it was just like everything I could get my hands on. If it was marketing or R and D or product management or whatever it was, it was just fundraising, how to negotiate a fundraising deal. Like you were just, everything required a book. Um, and that works for a while, but eventually you need people that actually have experience doing this stuff. You can't, you can't be reading a book to make every decision. It takes too damn long. It served, <laughs> uh, I think you can safely say it served you reasonably well. Going into the stage where you are today. Yeah. I mean, but if I think back to that inflection point where we brought, you know, we'd built the business up, you know, pretty well. Um, and then Jim joined, there was a moment, right. Where, you know, you're, you're talking to the board and you realize that you're, you're spending a lot of money, right? I mean, a venture back companies spend a lot of cash to keep going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing that, and being a CEO of a, of a growth company is about making decisions with incomplete data. Like that's what you're constantly doing. Should we go into that region? Should we build that feature? Should And there's no like obvious answer. You can try to be data-driven as you want to be, but you're trying to make decisions on things that just have never happened before. Um, and when you're young and you're not spending a lot of cash or you're just spending your own time, you can be, you can take the time to go read and learn and ask a bunch of questions. But as the burn continues, as it goes up over time, you have to make decisions faster because that delay causes us money. And the way you improve making decisions with incomplete data is experience. And that's, you know, that's the thing that, that Jim has really, you know, helped me a lot with. And I've learned a ton from is I've watched how he rationalizes based on his experience, the decisions that he makes, and also, you know, the way we've wrapped a, you know, a, a leadership team around that. So that's, that, that's been really beneficial for me. Um, it's just experience you can only get when, you know, working with, I guess, in this case would be almost a mentor uh, in that sense. So. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, as I say, it's uh, it's it's working for you guys and um, excited to see uh, see what you've got installed for, for Q4 in 2024. Um, anything you can uh, you can give us a, a heads up on for uh, what we can be uh, expecting out of school. Oh, what can I share? There's some pretty exciting product announcements. It will probably come early in, or probably mid to late January. Uh, we've yeah. got some pretty exciting stuff that we're working on that, that we're really excited about. We think the the area, the definition of SOAR is becoming very murky and, and the opportunity for automation within security is actually growing. Um, but the definition of how you solve that problem has changed pretty dramatically. So um, I'm pretty excited about what our engineering team has, has put to product and engineering team has put together and, and what we're going to be bringing to market. I, I think it's pretty exciting. And, uh, you know, th that, that would be the, you know, the, the tech in me says that's the thing to look out for. The business results are actually pretty interesting too, but I'm always, I generally have a tendency to, to focus on the tech. Yeah, well, stay stay true to it. Well, Cody, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a been a great opportunity to uh, to delve into a few things that um, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't have heard from you before. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Oliver. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, man. We hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of Cyberbytes, the podcast. Please give it a thumbs up, subscribe, and tell your friends. If you want to explore being a guest or how Aspiron Search can help you build high-performing security and go-to-market teams, then get in touch on LinkedIn or info at aspironsearch.com.